What is going on, freaks? Welcome to another episode of Hybrid Unlimited. This is me, Steffi Cohen. And Hayden Bo. And today we're writing solo into this episode. Today Hayden is pretty much interviewing me about my upcoming uh, release of my new book that I wrote in conjunction with Ian Kaplan, our COO, that I'm super excited for you guys to get your hands on. Um, we don't go too in depth into the book in this chapter. We talk about what the essence of the book is, which is pretty much a easy to understand yet in-depth manuscript about low back injuries. We address the common myths and misconceptions about back pain, what they are and what they aren't, and how our beliefs shape our experience with pain and the impact that clinicians and therapists can have and even trainers can have in our perception of these very particular peculiar injuries. Um, we talk more in depth about pain, what it is, uh, and how we can use it to inform our decision in our decisions in training and the process of writing the book and kind of what my a little bit about what my story was and what motivated me to to even start writing the book so yeah it's a packed podcast and it's pretty entertaining in my opinion and i think you guys will get a lot out of it and hopefully uh, it'll persuade you into buying the book this podcast is brought to you by Ghost Strong Equipment. They have the best equipment in the industry. Definitely go check them out at www.ghoststrongequipment.com and on Instagram at Ghost Strong Equipment. Also, don't forget to tag Hybrid Unlimited, myself, and Steffi uh, in screenshots, uh, in your stories, in your posts uh, of you listening to the podcast. And by doing that, you'll automatically be entered into a raffle where you can possibly win an entire brand new hybrid apparel uh, drop. So whatever we drop for the month, if that's flip-flops, shorts, hoodie, whatever, you're gonna get it all. And we choose new people every month. So definitely do that. Just a quick disclaimer, we had uh, a little bit of technical difficulties with the audio in this podcast. Uh, I'm pre-recording this disclaimer because uh, I got the word from Caesar, our media master, and he's going to do his best to clean it up and make it, uh, you know, as enjoyable a listen as possible. But if uh, if it's not up to our regular standard, uh, please don't hold it against us. Hi. Um, well, this is not the introduction. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So you're interviewing me. Yeah. So some pretty big news. I think you released it. Uh, earlier this week on your Instagram, mm -hmm. your book that you wrote with your co-author, Ian Kaplan. Oh, Ian Kaplan. Yeah. Uh, it's it's getting pretty close to to getting out there. Honestly, it's so exciting. What's the what's the release timeline? Look at like what stage are you guys at right now? So we already finished with the editing. Mm -hmm. So we sent it to an editing company, and we already got the the kind of the final product. Um, we have the cover, we have the forward, we have the back, we have the pictures, the author pictures. So we're just kind of putting everything together. And we just recently decided that we wanted to add more stories into the book because right now it's like pretty uh, science saturated. So we wanted to add a little bit more, you know, real life success stories of people who have gone through, you know, injuries. So we interviewed Matt Fraser and I'm actually interviewing Thor on Friday. Oh, We're going to cool. have their stories there. And I'm also writing a story, like a really thorough kind of very descriptive story of kind of what my experience with injuries and low back pain have been, uh, throughout the years. Well, let's, um, are you allowed to say, Anything about your experience without kind of giving? I actually you've talked about it a fair bit, but maybe maybe talk about. I mean, it's the reason behind what the my my incentive to write the book. Essentially, I through my own experience with going through different practitioners and trying different modalities to conquer my back pain, I felt disappointed in the service that I was receiving and the answers that I was getting or not getting and was very frustrated because I 
I guess I felt like I, I placed so much trust and, and respect on different healthcare pr professionals that I thought they'd have all the answers right. and it's not their fault. It's just that sometimes things aren't black or white. Sometimes you fall in an in-between spectrum that doesn't follow kind of common practice or the, the quote unquote logical progressions of an injury. And so when we've that, talked about that before, where even like with just powerlifting coaching, it's we've gotten to this place in strength sports specifically where we're just glorifying like the nerdification of sport. Mm -hmm. So it's like all this evidence-based this, evidence-based that. And, and there's such, like, I think it's a period of time where the least bit of importance is being placed on like the practical nature of both training and injuries. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think what's happening is that people don't really understand what evidence-based practice actually means. You know, evidence-based practice is a combination of three things. It's the research, you know, what the best available evidence is, uh -huh. your experiences as a practitioner, what have you seen, how many people have you treated, what have the people that you've seen responded better or worse to, uh, and personal preferences and goals of the person that you have in front of you. So... You know, what, what it's not is a research paper dick slapping contest. Yeah. And that's what most people treat it as nowadays. Yeah. And, and beyond that, you also have to understand that research isn't perfect. It's actually very far from perfect. I think we touched on that in a previous podcast where we spoke about how they are actually the majority of the research that comes out is is really flawed and is not accurate at all. I mean, you can start from the the demographic that you're studying and, and comparing that to, to yourself, right? It's like when you really take a deep look beyond the abstract at what, what these papers are saying and the way that they're conducted, you'll quickly realize that in most cases, they're, they're just not applicable. They're not applicable to you or to the subset of people that you're treating, you know? So... That happens a ton with strength training because it's, it's, it, I think it's, it's everything works and nothing works, especially when it comes to strength training. So it's like people are so quick to generalize, uh, you know, an outcome of a study to a particular that happened to a particular subset, uh, of people. And then they try to generalize it to everyone. What they don't realize is that the experience of those people is different. You know, they, they might be a mix of beginners and advanced if this, if the study wasn't conducted appropriately. Um, you don't know really, you don't really know what their degree of adherence to the program was. You don't know what their diet was, what their stress was, what sport did they play before powerlifting? I mean, I think that's, that can impact your success in strength sports tremendously. Well, and these are all like most of those studies, they're opt-in studies too, right? So it's like, have you been training for X amount of years? Mm -hmm, yeah. Are you an advanced lifter? And you're like, <laughs> I'm an advanced lifter. And it's some guy who squats 200 pounds. Yeah. I like, mean, it starts with, I always say that it, it always starts with the, with the utmost basic definitions of what you're studying. And if there's not a globally unified definition for what you're trying to study, then there's no study, you know, so, so what constitutes a beginner versus an, an intermediate versus an advanced like, lifter? Time in the sport? Well, because they do it based on time, because they do it based on time. But for example, I would consider myself an advanced lifter after my first year of lifting. I was breaking world records, you know? Right. So, and, and this applies to, um, to back pain, really well, what we're talking about right now, and starting with what actually led me into this deep rabbit hole of trying to understand one, what I was doing in therapy and how did it, how, how it can help me. And if the stuff that my, my peers and, and, uh, my therapists were telling me to do, if that was the best approach, just trying to understand that on a deeper level. Remember that time I literally, I stayed up until 4am cause I just started thinking about, why are we so obsessed with stability? You know, why, why is it that everyone that I go 4am and then you like spent the next three months talking, debating about stability, <laughs> yeah. specifically with Jordan shallow. <laughs> but no, I think we, now I think we found a common ground, Jordan and I, but yeah, I mean, there's this absurd obsession with trying to improve someone's strength and stability under the premise that that's what needs fixing. But what really happens is one, we don't have a unified definition of stability. 
specifically for back pain. We do understand what stability means in terms of physics, but we don't understand what that means in terms of a biological being. And those two things are very different. Right. So I like what you say. Like if you can do certain things, it becomes pretty evident that like you're, you're stable. You know what I mean? Like nobody forget your, your muscles stabilize your joints and your spine and nobody forgets to put on their muscles in the morning. You don't like wake up one day and all of a sudden you're like a slinky, mm-hmm. you know? Exactly. Exactly. And you know, the, the most commonly prescribed exercise for quote unquote stability or back pain, what is it? Spurred dog, dead bugs, side planks, whatever, right. To in- improve the stability of your core. First of all, it's pretty much impossible for us to actually to quantify how much stability we're lacking. And if there's actually a lack of stability, that's the first thing. And second of all, it's almost impossible to carry over the neurological adaptations that occur when you perform those exercises into an exercise like a barbell squat or a deadlift because the amount right right, the amount is yeah the link the gap between those is totally broken dead bugs and and bird dogs to squatting 800 pounds that's actually the name of one of our chapters really yeah from dead bugs to deadlifts yeah look you know also the demands are completely different how much stability you need to perform a dead bug is completely different to how much stability you need to squat or to walk, right? Like it's not the ability to stabilize is the ability to coordinate when you stabilize and how much you stabilize. Right. And that doesn't just happen magically because you can, because you can do one exercise. And that's not to say if, you know, if we're on the topic of bird dogs and dead bugs, it's not to shit on those exercises because clearly, you know, because there's always going to be someone that says, oh, but I did dead bugs, bird dogs and side planks. And I, I, got rid of my back pain. Then that's that argument honestly upsets me and frustrates me so much. I hear it all the time with different injuries and not only injuries, just different people love to use that argument. Well, but I did this and it resulted in this. Therefore it works. Right. right? But there's also going to be a subset of the population where that didn't work. And those people need an answer as to what to do as well. But the question here is we need to think more critically and think about why those things worked. So in the case of dead bugs, bird dogs and side planks, we talk a lot, we talk about um, the impact of isometric exercises uh, to decrease the perception of pain. So when you're doing an isometric exercise, like those three that I mentioned, you're activating something that's called exercise induced analgesia. And basically what that is, is that you have an acute period of time where your perception of pain is decreased, which allows you to move more, which allows you to, you know, get more blood into your, into your muscles, which allows you to, you know, exercise and do what you love and, and, and start getting into like a more positive uh, mindset when it comes to your injury. So yeah, they work, but they don't work by increasing the stability of your core. They're a great introductory exercise for someone who, who, who has an acute or chronic episode of back pain, because especially for people with acute back pain, why do they prescribe those movements? Well, for once they're all performed in a neutral position. So you have your spine in neutral, which, which I would say in 99.9% of cases, people don't experience pain in that position. It's either flexion or extension, right? Or I guess rotation side bending. So those are relatively, not relatively, but those are pretty safe exercises and pretty, uh, low on the, uh, pain exacerbation scale. So that's kind of like your introductory, uh, movements that you start doing. And so that's what I'm thinking. I'm saying just, I think it matters. Some people might argue that we're getting to semantics like, oh, well, if it's working, like, why do you need to understand why it's working? But I, I don't know. I guess I'll always argue that it's, it's always important to know the why and understand how, how that kind of permeates into the, the entire uh, the entire healing process and the entire well, the, why, the why of everything plan. is so important. It is. I mean, you can't imagine if we just took everything at face value and just believed it because it worked. We'd, we'd never have any advancements in science or anything. Exactly. I mean, look, the reality with any injury, any injury, specifically with back pain, is that it's multifaceted. Like it's multifactorial, and and to pinpoint the reason why someone's having pain to only one 
thing like stability is just so, so backwards in my opinion. What happens is you go to a therapist or you go to a chiropractor and <laughs> remember when I was telling the story to that guy in Vail and not in Vail, in Vail. So look, I have, for anyone who's listening, I have no interest in selling you any of my physical therapy skills or, you know, sessions. I don't treat people. So take this for what it is. I'm, I'm a trained physical therapist. I don't practice. Uh, so I don't, I don't have any incentive to lie to you. There's no bias. There's no bias at all. Now we are trained in school to go through a series of questions and procedures or methods or a guideline, I guess that's ingrained in our body, in our brains, uh, that takes us uh, all the way, you know, in the history taking takes us from the observation, evaluation, uh, special testing, etc. And it's a very step-by-step process that we are almost like trained to do as robots. And the final step of, of the, of the evaluation is a diagnosis. And it's almost like frowned upon if you don't give one, you know, when you're doing your, your clinical rotations, you must give a diagnosis. I don't know if I've told this story in a podcast, but the first clinical rotation that I did, I remember my first eval, I was alone. I was in a room doing my eval. I do my special test. It was someone who came in for shoulder pain and I did all the things, all the tests. And eventually at the end of the session or at the end of the eval, I, I was super confused. I, I had no idea what could be because I had so many positive tests and then I had negative tests that didn't confirm the positive tests. Right. So I was really confused and, and, and flustered. So I go out, I call my instructor and I go, Hey, you know, this is what happened. I'm very confused. I don't know what to tell him. I'm, I don't know what it is. And he goes, honestly, just tell him something. Just like give him something and or, or, or make up something. And I'm like, wow, I just couldn't believe that, that that's what sometimes is happening, right? Like that sometimes people just say something. A lot f- of the time, right? Because if you go to like five different physical therapists. Or five You'll get five different diagnoses. You get five different diagnoses. Yeah. What happens is that in most, most musculoskeletal injuries, because most of them are not that serious, you don't get, you don't go for second opinions, right? Sure. It's not like a massive surgery or like a heart it's thing like a or. chronic nagging. Yeah. Right. Like you just go to one and they tell you what it is and then you believe them kind of thing. But I mean, I did it with my back injury and I got five different diagnoses each time. So, so yeah, I mean that, that does happen. And the problem with that is that we're, we're essentially playing Sherlock Holmes of injuries is what I always say. You're, you're trying to like find something that doesn't necessarily mean anything because as pain science evolves. And as we deepen our understanding of the human body and of musculoskeletal injuries, we start realizing that it's not always a result of mechanical damage, of structural damage. You know, there's other factors that play a role in our perception of, of pain, and it's not tightly related to tissue damage. So even when you think that it, that it's a stru- uh, a damaged structure what's causing the pain it's not necessarily the case you know maybe there's no damaged structure because we know that in a lot of cases when we do MRIs and x-rays and whatnot there's times when we're going to find a when we're going to have a positive finding we're going to have find a damaged structure and the person's not going to have any pain and i forget what the clinical name for that is it's called a I forgot, whatever. So that happened, that same exact thing happened to me. I went for a back MRI and it was a low back MRI and they did my hips and they found a labrum tear and they're like, oh, does your hip hurt? And I'm like, not at all. You know, it's a super old labrum tear on my left hip, which makes sense because I played soccer. So imagine the amount of rotations, my planting leg, Sure. you know? Oh dude, if you did a scan of my body from playing hockey for 18 years or however long you played it for, uh, I probably have so much <laughs> stuff that I don't even know about. Yeah. Yeah. So we know that, and that's not to say that in some cases it isn't the case. Obviously, if you break your bone and you know you fall of a of of a, of a hill or whatever, you break a bone. Of course, okay, clearly, damage exists. It exists, but that's not to say that it's always going to be the case. And therefore, that's the reason why you shouldn't be looking for something to fix. You shouldn't be looking for what's broken. Right. In most cases. 
You know, in, in the cases where it's obvious, it's obvious and you focus on that, an ACL tear, you know, a meniscus tear, a labrum tear that wasn't in an acute way or whatever, you know? You know how, this is a, a bit of a tangent, but I'm curious and it just popped in my head. You know how when you were doing your rotations, you dealt with a lot of people who were coming in to basically get a letter that would help them get workers' compensation because they didn't want to go to work. Is there a way to determine if someone's just lying to get workers' compensation versus mm-hmm. they have like no structural damage, but they're just feeling this this pain because it's like a biopsychosocial thing. Oh man, like workers' comp is so obvious. It's so obvious. And, and I, you know, I was only there for a little bit over two months. I saw so many because of the area where I was in, I saw a ton of workers comp and it became obvious from the second the person walks in through the door that that's what they're trying to do. They're, they're trying to get paid time. You it's like everything from their dialogue. And they'd be like, you'd like poke their arm and be like, did that hurt your knee? And they're like, yes. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> dude. Sometimes they come in. Sometimes, sometimes they would come in. Um, ¿Cómo se dice cojeando, César? Limping. Limping on their left foot. But the thing, it's the, what they're coming in for is the other way. And then they forget and then they like, you know, they, they tell you that their right foot hurts. It's like, man, you can be more obvious, you know? That's what was the case that I treated one time? I was a shoulder pain person. Like every time I touched their shoulder, they were burp. Do you remember I told you that? <laughs> Vaguely. <laughs> Vaguely. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry. Like every time you touch my shoulder, it like creates gas. Every time. She was burping up a storm, there's curry a, storm. There's a cute double. She was right Indian. The street from your uh, saying maybe she had a burrito before she came over. No, nah, man, she ate straight up curry. That was in Chicago. No, in Texas, straight up curry sauce. <laughs> yeah, that's what it smelled like. I mean, it's not racist. You're canceled. The truth. You're canceled. That's what it smelled like. It's objectively what it smelled like. Well, sometimes things smell like that. curry. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you know, I'm actually interested in. I mean, I saw a little bit of it. But I mean, you kind of do your own thing sometimes and I do my own. And this was your project with CAP. You saw like the introduction. Like yeah. we did so much more. Yeah. So what's what was the process like of making an evidence-based book like this? Like what, what were the steps that you had to go through? Because um, I'm sure there's people, I mean, you have a pretty educated, education-oriented audience. I feel like. There's a lot of people who are interested in or maybe thinking about writing a book. I mean, I don't think I'm understanding your question because I think the process to writing any book, it should be evidence-based. Even books that are about non-science topics sometimes or most times include references in the back. So yeah, is your but, question uh, just like, what's the process of writing a book? I mean, sure. If you don't think it's any different than, than writing. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll t- I guess, yeah, I'll talk about why if that, that's totally fictional. I'll talk about, I'll talk about my, er, uh, kind of what we did. So I've been playing around with the idea of writing a book for a long time. It's something I've always wanted to do since I was a little girl. I didn't know obviously about what, but I always knew I wanted to write a book. Now I have severe ADD and I have a problem with finishing things that I start. Like that's just me in a nutshell. So I started realizing that that for me, I thought that the only way for me to actually finish a book was to have a co-author that kind of like kept me in check and helped me uh, help me break through writer plateaus when they happen. Right. So we actually had such a good thing going on. Ian and I, when we started writing, that was at the beginning, uh, at the beginning of Ian working for us. Um, we're working on a ton of educational content. And actually the way this came about was I had, I wrote a lower back pain or conquer your back pain hybrid program. So it's a three month long program to, to, to get past back pain. To what, sorry? To to get past or get through back or conquer your back pain, whatever you want. And as I kept, cause I, we actually input it into the software, but I never wanted to release it because I felt like without the education component, it wouldn't work. You know, it just becomes sets and reps and that's not what it's about. So initially, if I remember correctly, you kind of wanted to make up like almost like a pamphlet that went along. A PDF. Right. Yeah. So I had written like a, I don't know, a 10 page long PDF about back pain, like what it is, what it isn't, what are the most common myths, what are the most common misconceptions? So it was like myth versus reality. Like that was kind of like the, the, the first few pages, right. the impact that pain has on, or that 
the impact that your brain has on the perception of pain, blah, blah, blah. But obviously it was, it, it felt very rushed. I felt like I was leaving a lot out and honestly didn't feel comfortable putting it out just because I didn't feel like people were going to get the big picture. I felt like people were going to sign up for the program, more or less do it, get frustrated because it starts really slow. It starts, I'm assuming worst case scenarios for people who join. I'm assuming that the person who's coming in is like, can barely move. So I don't know. I didn't feel, I didn't feel like people would really understand how to navigate the program. So I talked to Ian about, uh, also a lot of people in, you know, strength sports are not big readers, not all of them, but a lot of people just want to, Oh yeah. People are lazy. They want to sign up for something that they can follow and quickly fix it. Right. You know, if you give them something to read, I mean, we see it all the time with our nutrition program, right? Yeah. We send people an ebook when they sign up, we say, Hey, this is very important. Make sure you read the ebook. (laughs) And no one reads it. The first 30 questions that they ask are like, Hey, that was on page one of the ebook, you know? Yeah. Hey, if you're one of those people, read the things we tell you to read. Yeah. Which, I mean, it's different, right? If you're selling a book, the person who's writing a book, who's who's buying the book... Is trying to read Hopefully <laughs> will read it, right? But yeah. a person who buys a training program, that might not be their incentive. So... I think you made a smart choice with the change in direction. Right? Yeah. So I told Ian about the, about the program. I told him about what I felt insecure about. I told him about the PDF I wrote and I was like, Hey, maybe you can help me like expand it a little bit. Maybe you can, you know, maybe we can make it a little bit more thorough. And I remember like the first copy that Ian sent me back was like 40 pages. And I was like, dude, that's a book already. Like, why don't we actually expand on everything and like go from beginning to end and actually write a book? Cause 40 pages on word, like that's already like a little booklet, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, Chuchi shaking. What do you think? Cool. Um, yeah, so that was the beginning. So what the strategy that we that we took was we started a. He was still in school in Cairo school. Was I? No, I was. Oh, there. I, I need to address that because you just said Chuchi's shaking, and I feel like no one's. Chuchi's my dog. That's a nickname that Steph has for a dog, Dexter, for some reason that I'm not quite sure. If the, if I said Dexter, you think people would would know? Our our most loyal listeners would. I think. Mm, okay, well, Chuchi's my dog. <laughs> Go on. Um, so we opened, we started a, uh, shared Google drive note and we started with the, with the, um, um, table of contents, just like writing what we thought would be necessary to have. Mm -hmm. And then we would give tasks to each other. So it was like, you know, either, either I would ask Ian for help with a chapter and I would be like, Hey, can you write this one? Like, I think you'd be better for this one than me. And then he'd be like, Hey, can you complete this session? Or like, what do you have to add? And we would kind of proofread each other's chat, each other's, uh, sections. And it grew so fast from, from 40 pages to whatever. Yeah. Well, no, it grew fast from 40 to a hundred and then a hundred to 200. Like it grew fast just by like adding every once in a while. And he ended a great job. Like he, he, I kudos to him because he took the most, the most involved sessions for sure. There's a history section that he wrote all by himself. That's amazing. It's so good. The history of back pain. He put so much time and in, in, in effort into that one. I, I, I love it. It turned out really well. I think that was a, uh, a good strategy to, to just keep the ball rolling. Like I would, I would open that document every day, even, even if I didn't intend in writing just to kind of like keep the creative juices flowing in my, in my brain and keep thinking about what the next thing was going to be. So, you know, a lot of the time it just involved reading and rereading what we had already written. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I would add a sentence here and there. Sometimes I would add a paragraph. Sometimes it'd be a page, sometimes two, you know, depending on, on how inspired you are on a particular day. I think, you know, writing is something that you can't really force. I think there's, there's, we all have times in the day where we're more or less creative, but even then, you know, even sometimes when you do everything perfectly, like in training, you have, you, your nutrition is good, your hydration, your salt intake, whatever you go to the gym and you still f- feel like shit. Yeah. Writing is no different. You know, sometimes you're like, okay, this is 8am. It's my prime time. I had my coffee. I meditated for 10 minutes. I'm going to write. And sometimes you have a block. It's, it's nothing's coming out. Everything you write, you hate, you keep deleting it. It's so just, just that, um, 
It was a really cool tip. This is an aside. Yeah. Remember I went to that Flow for Writers course mm-hmm. um, by Stephen Kotler. Mm-hmm. And he had a thing where he said, "What whichever like sentence you're on uh, when you finish writing, mm-hmm. don't finish writing that sentence. Mm-hmm. Keep it open. Yeah. So if you like, because if you finish it, then it's like your thought is over and you have to restart from a new thought the next day. But if you leave that sentence like halfway finished, like it just, it just helps you continue because you have to think about what you're thinking about the day before kind of in a more in-depth way oh i like that cool right yeah i like that um so yeah i mean that was the approach that we took and it was it was good because it just kind of kept us it removes the that overwhelming feeling of having to finish Right. You know, we didn't have a deadline. We obviously we had a deadline in mind. We we're like, oh, I, we hope we have it ready by X time. Yeah, they're loose. Uh-huh. But, you know, just like removing that stress and, and, and just thinking that every day you do a little bit. And it, as long as you're, as long as you're opening the document, you're already making progress. Like that was kind of the approach that, or the mentality that I had throughout writing the book. Um, you know, you were, you were doing, you were doing your job. So it was super fun. I definitely want to write another book. That's so cool. You're already thinking about another one, huh? We, we were already thinking about another one, like halfway through. What do you, what do you think the topic's going to be? Um, well, Ian wants me to write a, uh, like a biography. Oh, that's cool. Like my life. You have a pretty interesting life. I do, but I think it's, uh, I think I want to wait a little bit longer. I'm not done writing my story. That's true. You got lots left. Yeah. Uh, you decided to self-publish. We decided to self-publish. Um, you know, I think that a lot of authors struggle with exposure right, and really definitely not your problem. No. And, and struggle. Yes. You struggle to get in front of audiences and, and, uh, generate interest in what they're writing and who they are. And they need a publisher to get eyes on them and do, you know, book tours and presentations, podcasts, whatever. Sure. And I just felt like I didn't really need that. So they take a big chunk, yeah. like a huge chunk off of your, your, um, your, uh, revenue. Yeah. And so we didn't want to, we didn't want to go that route. I felt like I felt pretty confident that we could, that we could sell our book on our, on our website and through Instagram. For sure. I feel like that system's a little bit outdated. It's like, what are you, you yeah. get me on like Ellen DeGeneres some, show, some, some talk shows and some, you know, some radio shows and I'm going to go to bookstores physically there and like talk about the book. It's like, you can go on one popular podcast now and reach more people in a day than an entire like year long book tour, you know? So I think, especially with the platform that you have, it just, it makes sense. Like why are you going to cut a huge check to somebody? Exactly. And you had offers to, from publishers, but it's like, it just makes, it makes sense to do it here. Exactly. I think. But I do think it's interesting your own personal experience. That was something I wanted to talk about. You know, you were talking about how there's no, you know, you go to five different therapists and they'll tell you five different things. Mm-hmm. That was definitely the case with you. But um, I think what the real danger is not that, but the people who only go to one therapist get horrible news and then believe that to be true. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, you went to somebody who was very, very reputable. Mm-hmm. You know, seen as one of the leading experts in, in back pain and, mm-hmm. and you know, spine research. And they told you, or he, he or she, I don't, don't want to draw too much attention, but it said that, you know, you'd have to take 18 months off of lifting at, at all. You know, and you were like, can I do like bicep curls? And like, no. Tricep extensions. Tricep extensions, extensions? yeah. No, not even that. And then. How many weeks later did you break a bunch of world records? Mm, a couple of months, I think. But I think that... No, less. Less, like six weeks maybe. But I just feel like... I mean, that's scary because you put so much trust in those people. And, you know, that advice, albeit wrong, was still damaging to your mentality, your training, the way that you think about yourself. It's the, it's the power of suggestion. I remember... You you went into that session like you had just hit a crazy squat PR actually because it was leading up to the animal cage. You know, right? and also deadlift. I had I done like five hundred for day, that for day, four. You did five hundred for three or four or something like yeah. that. Something crazy. 
felt totally fine. I mean, my back was bugging me, but it wasn't unbearable. Whatever. You're dealing with regular training pain that people deal with. You know, your back was sore, like cool. My knees get sore when I squat, you know, but that's part of the power thing, right? I mean, no, it was a little bit worse than, than my back was sore, but yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, not so much that it was limiting you. A few days later, you went in and you hit that huge squat PR. Like you were able, you were able to train. Yeah. You know, you yeah. I was able to train. You, were, you didn't have to take 18 months off. No. But I remember you leaving that appointment thinking that you, you were done. You know, you I left, left that, that appointment feeling fragile. Like that's exactly, that's if one word would describe how I felt was fragile. Like I. And feeling a ton of pain. Oh, but the reason why I felt pain was because it was four hours of provocation tests. Literally like I got kind of poked right. where it hurt all like for four hours. So, and yeah, you're right. I mean, when a figure of authority tells you that it could be X, Y, Z, even with all the information that I had already that i already had it, it it played tricks with my mind like i was already you know i was already feeling worried about whether or not that could or could not be true and whether or not i ha actually had to take those 18 months off or not mm -hmm. um so yeah do you think that there's such a thing as someone who reaches a level like yours where like your back is just something that's going to always bother you. Like Sorry, but before we, can we, can you hold on to that thought? I just want to go back to, to the topic that, to what we were talking about right before. Yeah. Remind me of that though. What, what, we were what was it? What was it? I'm going to write it down. Uh, you're just doing accepting training with pain. Well, you're just doing accepting pain things that literally no one else has ever done before, you know, and is there a certain level of pain that comes with that? Mm -hmm. That's what I want to talk about. But yeah, no. So we were talking right before we were talking about, going in to see someone and, and being delivered awful news and then being terrified. Yeah. There's definitely something about dealing with a back injury that's different to dealing with any other injury. For some reason it it gets it gets a a lot more mm, what's the word I'm looking for? Therapists and clinicians see it as a more serious injury than any other body part that you get hurt for some reason. Sure. Be I guess because a bad knee injury means you need like a knee replacement, a bad spine injury means you're completely debilitated, right? Like the stakes are very high when you're talking about spine and neck and like back and neck injuries versus any other joint. Yeah. But that makes, that makes both therapists and patients unnecessarily wary and unnecessarily cautious when they're dealing with a back injury. I agree. Well, we've definitely talked about this before where a lot of therapists are more concerned about just not giving a, they're so concerned about not giving a diagnosis or a recommendation that could cause potential harm. Liability. Or liability. Yeah. That they don't want, that they just, they just don't give good advice at all because they don't want to take a risk. They just play with what's safe. What's going to not definitely not hurt someone. Yeah. And, and that applies to any injury too. Yeah. But they yeah, they do tend to to exaggerate a lot when it comes to to back injuries and what they mean and what people can and can't do. I remember listening to a TED talk. Was it a TED talk or I don't know some sort of lecture online by a person called Lorimer Mosley. He's a PhD in neuro something neuroscience, pain and pain management, something like that. And he was talking about how funny it is that whenever you walk into a doctor's office, therapist or Cairo, you usually see spine models and these spine models are so freaking outdated. You see them just like lying on the table and you see the, uh, the disc sometimes is so far out of the spine that it's just laying there on its own. And all of those, all that visual input and all of that information, you're, you're absorbing that. Like, even if it's your subconscious. So when people think about herniated discs or bulging discs, and you start thinking about that, just think about, think about the possibility of, of your disc being completely displaced from your spine. I mean, that's a pretty strong, um, visual. Right. It's also possible. It's impossible. Right. It's impossible. So that's, that's a problem with that. It's like that even starting with the educational portion of what they're going to say and the educational tools that they have in their office, you're already starting on a wrong, on the wrong foot. Yeah. Yeah. Because spines are 
inherently stable. They're not flimsy models like that. It's not easy. It's not easy to, to completely bulge a disc. It's not that our spines are strong and resilient and can definitely recover from all of that. Whereas like, I feel like when people have a back injury, they see it as, as career ending as life ending, as life threatening and, and, and career ending if you're an athlete. I think you, can, you can have things like a bulging disc and not even have any symptoms, right? Right. Yeah. 56% of people have bulging discs and never experience any symptoms at all. Uh, wow. Yeah. The majority. That's huge. Yeah. No, no, 30, 30 something percent. 56 so. is the amount of the sensitivity of an MRI. But anyway, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's not a life sentence to have a back injury. And I remember when I first started, when I, when someone suggested that it would, that it was a possibility that I had a hernia disc, I remember I called Jordan and I was like, Oh my God, dude, I, my life is over. I was like, it's done. Like, I'm never going to lift again. You know, I'm, it's, it's impossible. He's like, what are you talking about? And what if, what if it's a herniated disc? And I'm like, it's, what am I going to do? I'm never going to be able to recover. That's what I learned in school. I'll never be able to lift again. And he's like, dude, relax. You know, you're going to be fine. It's just a herniated disc. But for some reason, we think it's like this, you know, massive, horrible thing. But um, yeah, that's why, that's why I'm so kind of averse or opposed to these very strict and inflexible diagnoses that are so specific and that carry so much weight. And I think that as clinicians, as therapists, trainers, whatever you are, you need to be very careful with the words that you use when you're talking to your patients or your clients to ensure that you're not putting things in their head that are going to make it more difficult for them to get past the injury. Yeah. I think that's really good advice. Mm -hmm. It's simple advice, but it's like so many people get it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So what were you saying about pain? Also, you said something about pain, oh, experiencing yeah. pain. Well, yeah, I was, I was just interested in your opinion on people doing superhuman things like uh -huh. you do, you know, it's like, you know, yeah, your back hurts when at 120 pounds, you deadlift 550. Cool. My head hurts when I hit with a hammer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Those are both things that you're not supposed to do. Mm-hmm. You know, and you do them. Is there a certain level of pain that's just like, okay, you're doing things that are beyond what your body's supposed to do? It's, or, you know, are you, is that just something you have to deal with or is that something that can be fixed? Yeah, honestly, that's, that's a great question. And I think it's a really important conversation to have, especially for our audience that it's mainly active people. You know, we're so obsessed with eliminating pain. You know, people always want to get rid of pain. People always want to be quote unquote pain free, injury free. Right. And I've literally heard coaches say that if you're in pain at all while you're training, you're doing it wrong you're or something. Wrong. I'm like, are you? Are you I've trained I've in pain my entire my entire life. I've had some sort of pain. Life is pain. Life is pain. <laughs> no, actually, it is true. I think that, and, and that starts with our understanding of pain. And that's this is a chapter. I actually have it open for me. It's a super thorough chapter on pain science. And I think we did a really good job at dissecting it and, and, uh, and kind of framing it in a way that is really easy to understand. So it also, any injury really, it starts, life starts with understanding pain. What really is pain and, and why it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Like all that pain is, is something that helps us make sense of our environment and helps us avoid potentially future harms or threatening situations, right? It's like, yeah, like that is data. Uh, it's data. Exactly. It's like a, a hot stove or, or, or something sharp that you touch. It's like your brain saves that information and remembers it right. now. And then it, it saves it for the future, right? Like if you see a stove or if you're ever like, if you, if you, um, feel some sort of warmth, your brain's going to remember that and want to, it's going to want to take the hand off. Another example that Lorimer gave was funny, was about one time that he was hiking and he was running through the woods. Yeah. He was hiking, running through the woods, whatever. And he felt something on his leg, kind of like a branch of some sort, touch, brushing his leg, didn't think much of it, kept going on his hike, running, whatever. And next thing he knows, he's like, he's like waking up in a hospital. He's like, what the hell just happened? Right. He's like, oh yeah, you were, you were bit on your leg by a super poisonous snake. And he hadn't really, he hadn't, 
he didn't, his brain, I guess, didn't interpret that as anything important, as anything massive. So he just kept going. And then, and then the poison went in and, you know, passed, he passed out. So the next time that he went hiking or for a run in the, in the woods, this, a similar thing happened, a similar experience happened where, where a branch brushed his leg and he freaked out. Like he had almost like a panic attack. He was screaming. He was screaming. Yeah. Cause yeah, it was so unbearably painful and like, he didn't even want to look at his leg and then he looked and it was nothing. It was like a scratch from a branch. And that's pretty much your, your, your brain being extremely sensitive to. Is that learned pain? Is that what that's called? It's called, uh, sensitivity. So we talk about sensitivity and habituation. Those are kind of two, the two polar opposites. So in this, we actually adopted from Greg Lehman, which who we had in the, in the podcast, but you know, the analogy of pain being like a smoke alarm is so good. So normally you're, you're an alarm that is fully charged. That's brand new. It works well, right? Like it'll only go off when, when there's a smoke that can cause potential, uh, harm or threat. But obviously after a while, you know, with wear and tear or with, with the batteries being running low or whatever, the alarm might become too sensitive for too sensitive or not sensitive at all, but too sensitive for the purpose of this discussion. And the alarm might be going off for no reason at all. Even when there's no, den- no, no danger at all, there's only smoke because you're toasting a piece of bread, whatever. So all that that is, is a very loud alarm that's going off for no reason. So pain actually can work on the same way. At first, it's telling you about a potential or a real danger and eventually just has trouble shutting off on its own. And the volume and consistency of the alarm is no longer telling you anything about the severity of the, da- of the danger. And that's what happened to Lorimer in that case. And that's what happens to people with chronic pain. It's the alarm becomes too, too sensitized to the input from the environment and starts going off for no reason. So, and that's another reason why bird, dog, dead bugs and side planks work because you're essentially exposing, it's called progressive exposure, uh, graded exposure. So you're ex- essentially exposing yourself to certain movements so that you can downgrade that alarm and eventually habituate. So habituation is the, um, opposite of sensitization. Basically that's what you're doing. You're trying to, um, decrease the sensitivity of your pain receptors and of your, the pain alarm so that it doesn't tell your brain that there's a threat. So, so that you can feel, so that your brain can feel comfortable in the environment that you're in and not feel threatened. So it's similar to what Muay Thai fighters do with their shins, where they hit it with bamboo sticks or hit it against. Kick the bamboo trees. Yeah. Kick the bamboo trees. It's exactly the same. The reason why they stop feeling pain is because they habituate to that, to the exposure of hitting themselves with bamboo trees and eventually stop feeling pain. You know, they're, they're beating their shins up and they can barely feel it. Or, or when they, uh, when they, sm- uh, break, uh, things of brick, cinder blocks, cinder blocks with their hand. Yeah. Obviously they don't do it from one day to the other. They had to, to do graded exposure to that particular movement and, and exercise so that they can break the, the cinder block. Yeah. That makes sense. So... That's what chronic pain really is. It's uh, like you're saying, it's learned pain or kind of a learned protective response when we experience persistent pain. But it's not really, it's not really accurate. It's not really accurate communication, what's happening in our bodies. And just, I think there's pretty much, there's two different camps. There's the uh, structural camp or mechanistic camp, and then there's the biopsychosocial camp. I never, I've never felt like I can that I would want to be exclusively in one or the other. I way rather kind of always be somewhere down the middle and be able to pivot one way or the other, depending on the person that I have in front of me, which is the meaning of evidence-based information. It's what we're saying. That seems so long. There's the evidence. So why does, why is it not common practice to do that? Because people love to be protective under the umbrella of a camp. So why, why do you think people end up in those different camps. I think the reason why a lot of people 
tend to hide under the umbrella of a particular training camp is because it's more comfortable. I think it's a lot easier to digest information when it's presented to you in kind of almost on an algorithmic way where you're just taken through the, the thought process of the person that created this way of thinking and you don't have to do much of it yourself. So you don't have to think critically when you're following someone else's plan or intervention or way of thinking because it's it's structured, right? But thinking on your own and being able to draw from your own experiences and your own knowledge and being able to adapt that way of thinking to the person that you have in front of you is a lot more difficult, which is why, I mean, the essence of a lot of the education that we do at Hybrid is centered around empowering people to think on their own. So you never want to tell people how to think or what to think. You want to help them think um, and then create their own their own plans and create their own, their, you know, get to the, their, a conclusion on their own, essentially. So that's the reason why most of those kind of training certifications are so popular. It's because it's because they sell. It's, it's easy when people are selling you the X method, right? And it's, it's just an easy, that doesn't mean the hybrid first method is like that. We just have the word method, but it's just easier to understand and it's easier to apply. What's one like that that I can think about? Um, FMS. FMS, I, I think it's great in certain circumstances. You know, it, it, it's really easy to teach. It's replicable. It's a step-by-step -step approach. You, you know, you know, if you have, if you observe this particular movement deviation, then this is what it means. And this is how you fix it kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it's very thorough. We, we actually, we took it together, right? DFMS. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's a good tool, but it shouldn't be your only tool of assessment. Well, like That's, any of the other things that you just said, or you mentioned before, it doesn't fit everybody. Like yeah. for example, that, that test tells me that I shouldn't be doing any, uh, I'm not ready to do any overhead movement. Mm -hmm. I could snatch 145 kilos. Yeah. Because of the position I'm in, I'm thinking, I'm able to think completely objectively in an unbiased way and just completely remove my emotions about any topic and just see what there is to say, what different. And I always tend to, that's why I love so much this, the YouTube series Jubilee. Mm-hmm where it's called middle ground. It's super cool if you haven't seen it. Basically, they they pick a topic that's controversial or that you know people debate about a lot and they present, present to you the two opposing uh, thoughts, ways of thinking. And that's kind of how I tend to approach everything that I wanna learn about. I, I, I wanna learn about why the victim is being victimized and why the victim was there in the first place. Like I like to learn both sides of, of an argument and same goes for science. You know, I want to learn about why people who think that stability is the most important thing, why they think that and what are, what proof they have to believe that. And I want to think why the anti-stability think that stability is not important at all. And then I always tend to fall somewhere in the middle. I always say that, Whenever someone goes to a, ther a physical therapist or a chiro or a sports med doctor, or whatever, and they seem too comfortable, confident in in the in the diagnosis that they're giving you, it, it's usually a red flag. Like nobody really knows, right? I think those people are posers. They're pretty much trying to make you believe that they haven't, they have they have a knowledge that is impossible for you to get or understand, you know, that by poking you, pressing you in different ways that they're, that they're able to know for a, for a fact what's wrong with you. And it's not necessarily a case. I think, yeah, anytime you're in a situation like that, run out of the door. But, um, yeah, I think a, a way better way to practice is just, and that is evidence-based practice in the end, right? It's being able to, understand the research and understand everything that's there, understand every single, you know, method or modality of treatment or therapy that there is and be able to grab bits and pieces based on the person that you have in front of you. So that's the other part of evidence-based uh, practice, the person that you have in front of you and their goals and their, and their needs and their preferences uh, and combine that with your experience. Maybe you've seen that before, so you're so you're gonna be more inclined towards one particular 
uh, treatment modality than other because it's worked for X amount of people that you've seen. Mm -hmm. And that is essentially evidence-based practice. It, and what evidence practice is not is being too rigid and, and hiding behind one particular way of thinking. I remember one time when I started posting about, about back pain, I had a few controversial posts where I spoke about flexion versus extension and whatnot. And every time I made one that refuted one camp or one, one of those like certifications or continuing ed courses, I would get slammed by them. Like they would feel personally attacked, like to that extent, they identified with being part of that certification. It's like part of their identity almost. And I think that's sad because If you have a doctorate level degree, you should have, you should have already mastered the ability to think on your own. You shouldn't, you shouldn't need all those letters after your name. That's why, you know, initially when I graduated PT school and going into PT school, when I graduated undergrad, I felt like I needed more information that I needed to learn more. So I went into grad school and after grad school, I felt as lost, if not more than I felt after undergrad. And I thought that in order to be the caliber of therapist that I wanted to be, I had to take all the certs, all of them, because that's the only way, right? You gotta have a tools in your toolbox is what they always tell you in PT school. And the truth is that If you can master the fundamentals and the basics, not master, like really understand them, like really, really thoroughly understand the basics of human physiology, you can, you don't need all of those letters because it's basically a repetition. It's basically a repetition with a bias towards X, Y, or Z. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, are some of, are some of them worth it? Maybe but you definitely don't need all of them. What you need is your eyes and your brain. You need to be able to refine your observational skills so you can understand what they mean and then be able to, to think critically about it, about what it means, what it's causing it, what the possible outcomes are, what the possible treatment, what the possible interventions might be for the person that you have in front of you based on their age, their gender, their occupation, their, their, their profession, their athletic background, whatever. Right. And, and, and that's what critical thinking is. Nice. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes sense. It kind of seems intuitive, but you know, like we said, there's not a lot of a lot of people sort of following that. So that being said, do you have like a, a target demographic for for the book? Honestly, there's there's something for everyone in this book. Really, um, it's I think it provides a very in depth yet concise uh, depth or breadth of information about back pain and injuries in general that could benefit anyone. You know. I think it's for athletes who have struggled with injuries and, and back pain. The first few chapters about uh, the seven most common myths and misconceptions about back pain that we debunk are super interesting, especially because it's about the common uh, the common way of thinking about these injuries and what you hear from the media and most therapists. So it's I think it'll be interesting for for the general public to learn about that. Um, also really great for trainers. You have, obviously you have the sample training plan at the end of the book, which includes, which in my opinion is one of the most important things because when it comes to, especially athletics, what therapists have the most time, most hard time understanding is how to bridge that gap between the dead bug and then, you know, their previous level of performance there's, right. and that can only be modulated through training is how do you progress an athlete from being on the floor on all fours to tackling someone, you know, if they're a football player or punching someone, if they're a boxer, right. you know, what are those steps in the middle? So the sample training plan, I think would be good to, to exemplify how we would, how we would take someone through from A all the way to Z when they when they have an injury. Uh, we also talk about anatomy, the core muscles uh, in a way that's a little bit different. We talk about the muscles that are commonly neglected in the core and, and how to train them, how to, how to have a, a really strong and resilient uh, midsection. And then I think the most interesting part for a therapist and clinician is going to be the brief history of back pain because it it talks about everything and 
it, it and it, everything and how it's shaped our belief of back pain. How did we get to the messed up point that we are at? And, and why do we have such a poor understanding about back pain? What, what has, what kind of research have we leaned on throughout the years that had led us to believe the things we believe in today? So I think there's, there's something for everyone there. Yeah. Awesome. On that note, uh, I, I think that's, it's everything at least I have to ask about the book right now, but I think even just in this podcast, there's so much to learn. And I, I really think that, uh, anyone can, can benefit from, from buying this book when it comes out. Uh, I haven't read it in its entirety, so I definitely want to do that too. And maybe understand a little bit more about myself and about, uh, injuries and, and how to come back in the most efficient way possible. So mm -hmm. yeah, everybody should be looking forward to that. Did, did we talk about a release date? I can't remember. Um, yeah, you're, you can, well, the ten, the tentative date is sometime in December slash January. We're just going through the final touches and edits and then the book will go into production. And, uh, once it's out, you'll find out if you follow us on social media, it'll be on sale on highperformancemethod.com. And I think eventually on Amazon, but first through our site. So, you know, keep your eyes peeled. <laughs>